Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. All right, we're here with Susan Messino, another Wisconsin-based rock journalist and paranormal researcher and all-around interesting person. How are you doing today, Susan? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me on. No, thanks for coming on. Um, You know, one of the reasons, you're one of the first people that we thought of when we started thinking about this podcast as as someone who is interested in in the same kinds of things as as we are. And and what's so amazing is that you're in the same town. I know, I know. Well, you know, I mean, great minds think alike. Right. (laughs) And uh, I've been a big fan of your band Sunspot for years. Thank you. Um, it's, uh, it's just, uh, an honor and a pleasure. And I know when we get together, when we see each other, that's all we kind of talk about is ghost stories. Like yeah. The latest story. <laughs> that, that's absolutely, that's absolutely right. Well, let's go back a little bit and, and to give, um, our listeners a little bit of, of your history. So Susan, number one, what got you interested in rock music and writing about it and things like that? And number two, what got you interested in the paranormal? Okay, well, as far as the music goes, um, when I was born, my parents owned the Riverview Ballroom in Sauk City, uh, Wisconsin, and they had big bands um, play. They had Louis Armstrong, the Dorsey Brothers, people, you know, way before my time, but uh, uh, I was a baby. I was born there, and uh, I do remember... Um, hearing the music coming through the walls. We had an apartment on the ground floor, and I remember playing in the ballroom, and, you know, uh, and I grew up that way. They owned bars and restaurants. They owned a hotel up north in Wisconsin for a while. They always had live music every weekend. And uh, I was fascinated with that, not only the enjoyment of it, but just, you know, watching them load in and load out and their families coming with them. And and the whole life, you know, it was very romanticized to me. And I loved music. And as I got older, I figured out, you know, I tried to play the guitar. (laughs) Okay, Okay, so you gave it a shot. Yeah, I gave gave it a little bit of a shot, but I I had horrible stage fright. I really, really could not do anything on stage. And uh, so later on, um, I ended up hooking up with a local music paper here in Madison and started reviewing bands and interviewing people and figured out, well, that's how I can be part of the music business is I can write about it. Okay. okay. And then with the, the paranormal, has started very, very young. Okay. My grandmother, um, I used to stay at her house a lot. They lived on the lake in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. And uh, <laughs> you think, you know, why would you tell a little kid this? But my, my grandmother was very open about the afterlife. She right. um, firmly believed in it. And uh, she would tell us that when her mother died, she appeared to her in, uh, in her bedroom to say goodbye to her. 
So she mm. saw her apparition after her mother died, and that just, that was it for me. I mean, I just, you know, at that age, I wanted to know how that was possible. Was that a good or a bad thing? Um, as soon as I could, when I got into, like, middle school, um, and there weren't a lot of books on the subject at the time. It really was kind of rough to, right. you know, to find uh, material. But um, I just started reading everything I could get my hands on. And uh, I've always been fascinated, and I, I do tend to have prophetic dreams. Um, I don't say I'm an out-and-out psychic, but I'm I'm pretty psychic about a lot of things, especially, um, excuse me, synchronicity, being in the right place at the right time, having that gut level, like, you need to do this right now kind of thing. Sure, oh yeah. I'm really good at that. And uh, so I wrote a book about it that I self-published this last year um, called The Secrets of the Universe, um, Universal Laws, Past Lives, Ghost Adventures, and more. And it has um, seven chapters on seven different subjects. And, and we'll, we'll, talk, we'll definitely talk a little bit more about The Secrets of the Universe book in a minute because it's, it's really cool. And it's, it's awesome that you went out and as a, and, and just so the listeners know, so the other books you've published are like biographies of ACDC and the Hank Williams, you know, the Hank Williams legacy family. And then didn't, didn't you also do one just to, like one about the history, like a lot of the stuff you saw in the seventies and eighties? Yeah, I did uh rock and roll fantasy, That's right. my life and times with ACDC, Van Halen, kiss, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and that, that covers a three year period at the end of the seventies, um, seven, about 77 to 1980. And actually it follows the rise of the, you know, ACDC and, mm -hmm. and their fame, but it also includes, you know, stories on just about everybody that came through the area at the time. Well, speaking of bands coming through the area, now I know that that when a lot of times when I hear ghost stories and, and Sunspot will hear this when we go into different towns and and we play in theaters, is that uh, you know theaters seem to have a ton of the ghost stories. You know when when you think like a theater, restaurant, hotel, it seems that the theater will always have the the most ghost stories. And, and so I was just wondering if you grew up around a lot of that and your parents owned a variety of places, did you ever have any experiences in any of the uh, the theaters that you grew up around when you were younger? Well, not not really, because I, I don't think I, I would have been aware of them okay. at the time. But, um, you know, definitely I know that, uh, you know, the theaters especially or places where people um, performed where they were the happiest tend to be very, um, you know, haunted or active because they, they tend to go back to where they were the happiest. And especially performers, you, know, you, you hear that a lot where, um, sadly, performers that died or, you know, committed suicide, and then they will stay attached to, like, the last theater that they worked in, that sort of thing. So, you know, theaters are definitely a hotbed for, for activity. Okay, yeah. And, and that's something, you know, it's... There's always stories about somebody killing themselves in a the theater or something like that. Like it just seems that that's the place where um, maybe the most expressive people are either drawn to, or it's the fact that um, that's where people. I, I think where you say with that performers really enjoyed playing, like that's where they felt most alive. You exactly. know, th yeah, that that's the way you feel most alive 
when you're performing and when you're in front of a crowd that loves you. And I think maybe that um, afterwards, they want to get back to that whole feeling alive kind of thing. Oh, definitely. And, you know, um, yeah, it's not my original story, but uh, I have a story um, about Buddy Holly that has uh, something to do with that, actually, if you want to hear it. Oh, yeah, of course I want to hear it. <laughs> well, you know, he played the surf ballroom, uh, was his last uh, gig the night that his plane crashed with, you know, uh, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper. And um, my two girlfriends that are psychic medium hypnotherapist Reiki masters, um, I, you definitely have to have them on your show. Yeah, I, I, I just, just their description is interesting enough. Yeah, yeah. Tamara Gleason and Donette Cook, they live up, uh, up north outside of Eau Claire. And uh, they were at the surf ballroom one night where, um, they, you know, they have different bands. It's still old. And they still have, uh, you know, they have a Buddy Holly anniversary, you know, every year. And they were there for on a different night. And there was like a metal band. There was actually like a, you know, rock and roll heavy metal band that was playing. And uh, there was a guy in the audience that looked exactly like Buddy Holly. And I mean, exactly. And they were laughing. They were actually giggling, uh, you know, amongst themselves saying, wow, does he think he's going to pick up chicks looking like (laughs) him? You know, what's the deal? And and he went up to the side of the stage and he stood on the side of the, side of the stage and watched the band for a while. And then a little while later, he was nowhere to be seen. And uh, they thought, you know, that's odd. We didn't see him leave or anything. We didn't see him talk to anybody. So they went and started talking to the people that work at the surf ballroom. And they claim they didn't want to really talk about it at first. But they claim that Buddy Holly appears at the surf ballroom, and uh, if he likes the band a lot, he will go up on the side of the stage and watch them. Oh, then wow. He, then he vanishes, then you don't see him leave. He's just gone. That... And I thought that was so cool when I heard that. That's one of my favorite stories, because they were literally laughing at him, thinking, you know, wow, what is this guy? Is he an impersonator? Or, you know, does he think he's going to get attention looking like that? And, you know, and uh, the people that work there kind of shook their heads and said, yeah, that, yeah, he does that. We, we've seen him before. That's that's all, That's be- better than any A&R or press guy or whatever. I mean, <clears throat> that's somebody that likes you so much, they're coming back from the other side. Yeah, exactly. And well, then that was the last place he performed. So he's he's definitely they they do have they they admitted the people that work down there they have a lot of activity in the mm. surf ballroom. Definitely a place that I haven't visited yet, but I would love to go. Yeah. What do you find that? Um, now you mentioned that you have you know dreams where you might have, you know have some precognitive dreams. Um, do you, are you one of those people that are sensitive when they come to a place and can maybe feel things that other people can't feel? Do you, 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 have you ever experienced that? De- definitely, yeah. I pick up other people's feelings a lot, actually, um, which makes me an empath, I guess. And uh, sometimes it's a bad thing because, you know, if they're they're negative or, you know, they're not in a good place, um, it's hard for me to be around them. But um, I, I definitely will go somewhere or my own house. I mean, um, I get teased about, you know, I have traffic. My son is psychic also. He had, you know, a very vivid past life memory, and uh, he sees people. I mean, we have traffic. We just call it traffic. Okay. 
<laughs> Every once in a while we sage. We have to sage the house and kind of, you know, send people on their way and quiet it down so it doesn't uh, doesn't spook us out too much. And and your son, I mean, he had very vivid dreams and memories and everything all about the Titanic, right? Yes, he did. He went through a, a two-year period between the ages of four and six um, that he uh, drew and painted pictures of the Titanic. He knew things about the Titanic that, you know, we didn't even know until later on when they did documentaries on it. And uh, we were featured on the uh, TV show Ghost Inside My Child, their first season. And uh, he definitely... They think he was Thomas Andrews, the lead designer of the Titanic. Um, he's now he is in 3D animation and concept art, so that uh, uh, design ha- um, gene has carried over into this lifetime. And uh, he's uh, um, he's at peace with it now. But between four and six, he had night terrors, and we had a pretty rough time for for two years of him knowing things that no child would ever know about the Titanic and the drawings when you see his paintings and drawings of the ship and the intricate drawings like the pencil he did it like if you took the ship and cut it in half and looked at all the levels of the ship he did one of those when he was like four or five years old that still today people are are completely stunned when they see it they're they're like this is unbelievable that he could draw the Titanic from memory. He wasn't, he wasn't copying pictures. He was drawing it from his, from his memory. Well, and, and you know, I think that just, I mean, cause a lot of it, like, was he inspired when he first saw the movie or was that one of the things that what clicked it for him? That's what triggered it is we went out uh, one night and left him with the babysitter and Titanic, the movie was on HBO at the time. And the babysitter watched the movie, and at the end of the movie, Jamie, my son, he was about four, he got up, and she let him sit and watch the end of the movie with her. And the next day when I found out about it, I was like, oh, my God, you know, why would you let a four-year-old, you know, watch all these people drown? I mean, yeah, I, I saw that yeah. movie when I was 22, and that was a little much, that was intense for me, you know? Exactly, yeah, yeah. So I was not happy when I first heard that, but the next day... It wasn't, um, it was, it was just not the, the reaction that you would expect. He was like he had remembered the Titanic and he started talking about it and he, he loved to draw anyway. He was always, you know, he had a little art table, mm-hmm. he, he drew all the time. And within the first two weeks, he literally drew and painted probably 50 pictures of the Titanic. Oh, and wow. <laughs> doing that. He kept doing that over and over again, like different sections of the ship, the inside, the outside, it cracking in half. And then he, as it got more intense, he started having night terrors where he'd go to sleep and within an hour you could hear him and all of a sudden he'd be up and he'd be running like he was trying to find a way out. He he would run, you'd have to make sure he didn't fall down the stairs, Um, and he would be in a panic. He wouldn't know you, he wouldn't see you, and the doctor advised us, you know, his doctor said, well, don't, you know, shake him out of it, try to calm him down, you know, make sure he doesn't hurt himself, and just kind of ride it out with him. Well, this went on for two years, and he was more and more 
talking about the accident itself, how it shouldn't have happened, and how they they rushed the, the, the building of the ship. The ship was made of iron. It should have been made of steel. Um, the uh, door, you know, when they, when they hit the iceberg, the doors in the boiler rooms closed, emergency doors closed, and the men were trapped. And he was like five, and he used to cry over that. And he used to say, oh, mama, mama, it shouldn't have happened. It wasn't fair. It shouldn't have happened. And I said, well, I know, honey, it's, it was awful. And he says, no, no, you understand. You don't understand. It shouldn't have happened that way. And he was drawing pictures of the ship, and it's got, you know, the four big smoke, smokestacks. Right, right. And he would draw smoke out of only three of them. And one day I asked him, I said, why is there no smoke coming out of this smokestack? And he's like, you know, he looked, and he used to be, he was so matter-of-fact about this, it was kind of comical. He looked at me and he says, not real, Mom. It's, it's a dummy stack. And I said, what do you mean a dummy stack? And he said, it was just for show. They didn't need it. They didn't use it. So it was a dummy stack. It's not real. And, and that's true. It ended up being true. That the one, one smokestack was just for show. It was not used. And and that's crazy how he would even know that. Oh you yeah, know he I mean? was five. He was five. He do it. <laughs> right, a dummy stack. Okay. Yeah, a dummy. That's a dummy stack, Mama. <laughs> you know, and he acted to me like you know, get with the program, lady. <laughs> you know, so yeah, it was uh, it was really intense, and he grew through it. And uh, now he, when he remembers it, I thought it was very sweet at the end of the show when they asked him um, how he felt about it or what he could remember of it. He doesn't really remember the night terrors or any of that, luckily, but he said that he remembers the Titanic being as familiar to him as his house was. Oh, that's, you know, and I think that's, uh, you know, that inspires me to think of another topic for a, a podcast sometime of people whose past live memories have been triggered by seeing something happen in a movie. Like mm-hmm. like if it's a Civil War or it's a World War II or something like that where they see something happen in a movie and they're like, I think that happened to me. Oh, and- yeah. Well, there's a lot of kids now. You know, I mean, the, the ghost inside my child now is in their second season and the stories are just amazing to me. You know, I thought my son with the Titanic was amazing, but every week I'm blown away by these kids and what they remember. Have you ever been regressed for a past life? I haven't been... uh, Hypnotized and everything? But, well, well, they try. They try to work (laughs) on me. My girlfriends do. But uh, literally, and, you know, I'm kind of outing myself. I don't talk about this very much. But um, when I was a kid, I knew that I had been here before. I didn't know the, the word reincarnation. I didn't know what it meant. But when I was a kid, I used to tell my girlfriends um, in grade school, because I remember them laughing at me, I said, uh, you know, I was a comedy actress in the 1930s, and I died in a plane crash. And they all looked at me like, yeah, okay. Nobody really talked about it. Nobody asked me about it. And when I got into my 20s, and that's a lot of times when it's triggered if it doesn't come out when you're a kid, it seems like when you start getting into your early 20s, um, I started really missing all these things, like people from the 20s and 30s and that lifestyle. And and, uh, so I went to the library and I started, I looked up a comedy actress that was uh, in the you know, famous in the 30s that died in a plane crash, and, and I came across Carol Lombard. 
and everything kind of fell into place. And she you know, was married to Clark Gable, and and uh, I I believe that if I wasn't her, I, I was her maid or something. <laughs> I was Carol Lombard's maid in the past life. Yeah, I could, I could have been. I could have been her maid, and, and I wasn't really her. But uh, but there are so so many similarities between the two of us. And I remembered like a ring I always wanted, a certain diamond ring for years. I used to talk about it. And then I one day I actually found a picture of her wearing that ring. And it just, you know, it really blew me away. Wow. And uh, I've, I've had uh, so many different things, you know, that um, have been brought up now over the years and her and I are were very much alike. Um she, you know, swore like a sailor. Uh <laughs> she yeah. um she was you know, one of the first um uh female actresses in Hollywood to pre- uh represent herself. She fired her agent and uh wouldn't belong to the studio system like everybody else did. She was uh she was uh, quite a, a woman that only really goes down in history is being married to Clark Gable and and someday I'd love to do a, like a movie about because she was uh, she was hilarious. Well, there's much there's much more to her than obviously just being Clark Gable's wife. Oh, much much more. Yeah, she was a trailblazer in in her day. Well, that's all. I'm always interested in because <clears throat> I've never had anything like that. You know, where I just know something. You know, I've had some some weird things, but never in that feeling of like well, you know that that feeling of familiarity and and so when I talk to people that have, I always. I, I'm fascinated because I just wonder what what would that, um, you know, that the, the deja vu in strange situations, and then discovering, you know, when you discover you have this missing a lifestyle from the 1920s, um, you know, that's I think for someone like me, it's hard to relate to because it's like, oh, I'm you know, I'm still missing the 1980s, but that's how I was alive, um, and and so that that's awesome. Well, yeah, and it's quite sad, too, because I, I remember, you know, crying over things I didn't know why I was crying over. I was just very, very sad. Like, I, I just, I went through a whole period of about a year that I just, you know, that's when it all came back to me. And um, talk about weird synchronicity. Um Right after we came out on TV with the, you know, the Titanic story, mm-hmm. the ghost my child. I love to watch Ghost Adventures with, you know, Zach, Nick, and, and Aaron. Oh, yeah. um, love all those shows. And uh, I recorded, you know, I record them and I watch them later on at night because I usually write during the evening. So I'm usually watch, watching the shows later on. And they opened their season, this last season, their opening show. Uh, I had it on, you know, I recorded it. I sat down and I started watching it and it was about Carol Lombard's plane, you know, plane crash. Oh. And they went to the site, which is in Nevada, because they, they stopped to fuel in Las Vegas, took off about 7 o'clock in the evening, and I think the guy, I don't know if the pilot was, like, trying to take a shortcut or whatever he did, he, he flew right into the side of uh, a mountain and killed everybody on, on the, the plane, including Carol. Mm. And... um 
I didn't know that there was anything left of this. This was 1942. You know, we're talking very many, many, many right. years ago. And uh, they, uh, the, the saloon keeper's kid, because the Pioneer Saloon where Clark Gable waited for the bodies to be brought down from the mountain, is still stands. And they have a big tribute room to her and Clark Gable. And uh, he, uh, Nick and the saloon keeper's got, uh, kid actually climbed down to where the plane crashed, and there's still pieces of the plane, including the engine, the engine and everything. Oh wow! And when I saw that, I physically got sick. I thought, you know, I I was really sick to my stomach. I didn't realize in a million years that there'd be any any traces left of the of the actual plane. Well, right after seventy years. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of it actually. There's pieces all over the side of the mountain still. Which, you know, made me mad because it should be in a museum, damn it. Right, right. You're like, hey, that's that's my plane. I know, I know. Some of my luggage might still be up there. You know? Well, you know, um, a few minutes ago, you just, you know, we discussed sensitivity towards people and emotions and, and that kind of, uh, you know, that extra sense of you know, being exposed to people around you, whether it's negative or it's positive emotions. Now, you've interviewed <clears throat> and spent some time with a lot of different bands mm-hmm. over yeah. the years. And what, you know, what would you say, is there anyone that struck you that, um, you know, you, you traveled with this band or you interviewed this guy and you're like, this guy is, comp-. it was later revealed how negative he was or, you know, that it's like... Like, as the band member said he was a jerk or whatever, and you're like, no, I, I felt that when he was in the room. You know, is, is there any example, you know, of maybe somebody where their presence, um, there's people whose presence obviously lifts everybody up and everything. And, and so I want to get an example of that. But is there any example of anybody whose presence, you know, is, is supernaturally bad that you might have interviewed back in the day? My gosh, I you know I mean I would say more of an arrogance than being bad, okay. you know, because, because like um like the guys in Angel for example, okay, <laughs> were, were were extremely arrogant. Um, the uh, when uh, ACDC opened for Aerosmith, um, and, and you know they seem to be lovely people now, but at the time, um, Joe Perry and Steve Tyler, Stephen Tyler, were pretty messed up. Well, yeah, they were needle fiends at the time. I mean, yeah, yeah. So they they didn't want to pose for pictures, and I had to kind of coerce them into doing it. Mm. So when I heard later on, you know, because I had no idea, you know, what they were into then. Um, when I found out later, or you know, another example too, like um, Ace Frehley and, and Peter Chris from from Kiss, they were definitely on the wrong road when I met them. And then Peter Chris, you know, God bless him now, he's, he's recovered and he's doing better, but he was very negative, very, very actually mean to be around. Oh. And, uh, but they were, you know, they were pretty messed up at the time. And, uh, and when they left the band, I was not surprised when they did, because I knew that, you know, Gene and Paul were, you know, totally straight and very businesslike. And Peter and Ace were, you know, doing everything they get their hands on. It. Right. Oh man, don't you hate it when they do that to you? 
Well, we're very sorry to do that to you, but Susan just had too much cool stuff to talk about for us to try to cram it into one episode. The good news, though, is you only have to wait one day for the rest of the interview because episode five will be out tomorrow and maybe even sooner than then, depending on when you downloaded this. So please check back for part two of the interview with Susan Messino. And in the meantime, show notes for today's episode are at othersidepodcast.com slash four. And since I talked with Susan today about some of her favorite 70s rock stars, here's Sunspot's ode to our favorite classic rock heroes, Saturday Night Gospel. Yeah, we've been playing since some rock was on cassettes And the girls teased the bangs with oceans of Aquanet We hung out in parking lots, learned to smoke cigarettes And we canonized all the rocker guys I used to high speed up my tapes for all my friends Ten years on with Napster, yeah, we did it all again We'd preach to the country heathens who never understood those reasons Why I always wore a concert shirt And every Saturday night we went to church And we sang Amen Changed and there were mullets just as far as the eye can see. My blessed virgin looked just like Debbie Harry. Oh, we prayed, yeah, we prayed at the houses of the holy. And just like John Lennon, we all were bigger than you know. I used to high speed up my tapes for all my friends. Ten years I'm a Napster, yeah, we did it all. Again, we preached to the country heathens who never understood those reasons why I always wore a concert shirt. And every Saturday night we went to church and we sang, Amen, my friend, hallelujah. Changed. 
we've been playing since rock was on cassettes and the girls tease their bangs with oceans of aquanet we hung out in parking lots and then two smoke cigarettes and we canonized all the rocker guys and we sang our man my friend hallelujah Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side.